Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen... Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich... Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. Hey, it's Isaac. <laughs> Isaac back on the mic with us. And we are actually all here in person in Berlin in the same room for the first time in a while. So, you know, hopefully you pick up a little extra coziness and like camaraderie on this Aww. episode. You know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> But before we get going, uh, we just want to say another big thanks to all of our Patreon supporters who make the podcast possible. If you're able to support us, uh, again, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, you will get from your subscription some great free episodes every month. Uh, we try and put out two uh, Patreon episodes every month uh, and also some great merch. We've got stickers and we've got some tote bags now. Yeah, there's some good stuff. And yeah, the, the premium episodes, we're, we're building a nice little a little repertoire behind the behind the paywall there. So I think you'll enjoy um, what did we do? We did Christian Lindner first, but we, we did release that to the people, I guess. And then we've got our, our trio. <laughs> but of, he already wanted it. It's like a, we had to. Yeah, we had to. Yeah. It had, was a public service. Yeah. And then we have our trio of Nazi, <laughs> Nazi collaborating <laughs> businesses. So we're doing some deep dives into the history there. So yeah, check out the Patreon if you have not already. And thank you to everyone who has. And some, uh, some, some possible field trips coming up for the Patreon. As oh well. yeah. It's also like the, <laughs> The Patreon funds field work. Like we had one field trip to Essen. We want to do Did another you field trip. Did you expense that? The, I didn't keep all my receipts. Accounting's being a bit difficult about it. I'm kind of going back and forth. So we're Shoot. working on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is the time of the holidays. <laughs> Yesterday was Thanksgiving. Which means today is Black Friday. So we hope you got your your little snipshins in on your shopping. <laughs> My friend, po this is such a tangent, <laughs> but my friend <laughs> posted just a bunch of like found images of how Germans um, advertise Black Friday shopping deals, and a lot of them will be like black shopping or like yeah, black I deals, saw that. and you're like, ooh, I saw like, a big one that was like Black Week, like, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and just everywhere. Like I think he just like took a trip through the mall and was like looking at these. Uh, Anyways, so I guess if you celebrate that day, but we, um, <laughs> <laughs> the point of that segue was actually the Thanksgiving part because. Well, because, I mean, we want to talk about food. Did you guys get any nice Thanksgiving meals in? Did you, uh, even though we don't get the day off over here, anything? No, I, I didn't. I, uh, I made some, some rice and red beans last night. Um, your traditional Thanksgiving. I'm from Canada. We don't do Thanksgiving at this time of year. <laughs> Um, I just like had a soup, so it was very Thanksgiving-y. <laughs> I, I made, I made Bratkartoffeln with a bratwurst, and then I was like, wow, this is so German, and it's Thanksgiving, shoot. And then I actually had a thing of Hidden Valley Ranch that I brought over, so I added them <laughs> to my potatoes to feel a little American Gross, connection. You, it was good. You like ranch dressing? That makes well, we're not getting into a ranch <laughs> dressing discourse now, but yeah, <laughs> how can you not? So scared of you. But yeah, so on the topic of a uh, sort of dubious celebrations of indigenous culture done by tone-deaf white people in fairly offensive ways, we want to talk about another country that does that, not just our dear United States of America, of course, but the country we all live in, Germany, which has a very bizarre obsession with North American indigenous culture, as we'll get into, uh, ranging from dressing up for Halloween to sort of people innocu semi-innocuously wearing dreamcatcher earrings, you'll see that around, to full-fledged, year-round, living in teepees in the Bavarian countryside, beating and pretending that they are some sort of very crude amalgam of all different types of North American people, sort of combining like Plains Indians and like the Navajo and then like the totem poles of the Northwest Indians and really, uh, yeah, we'll get into this, but a very, a lack of cultural awareness. And I think it's a bit of a tired term, but what definitely could be termed as cultural appropriation in one of the most egregious forms of the word. 
Yes. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned the, uh, the Dreamcatcher earrings. And I think on my uh, walk here from the Uban, I probably passed like so many. Well, I passed a, a couple of Kitas and they all had like these like Dreamcatchers, homemade Dreamcatchers hanging in the, uh, the windows. Um, but yes, this, this, this German obsession with indigenous North Americans uh, goes back actually a very long time. It can be traced back to Karl May, uh, a German writer from the 19th century and early 20th. 20th century and his character of Vinatu. Um, Karl May is described as the first best-selling author in Germany and by some accounts the most read German author. It's estimated that his 70 books have sold more than 200 million copies worldwide in more than 40 languages. Uh, so just to put that into some uh, perspective, uh, the Harry Potter series, for example, has sold about 500 million copies. Um, so just like over twice as many as, but I, okay, but that's like a high bar. That's, that's a high Potter. bar yeah, to that's set. Like... But, but the Twilight series, about 160 million copies. Fifty Shades of Grey, about 150 million. Hunger Games, 100 million. So, I mean, you know, the Vinatu books, Karl May, it's, it's up there. And I've, I've read that, you know, Vinatu is sort of the, would have been the Harry Potter of the... Uh, for the German children back in the day, back in the late 19th century. Yes, and not all of his books were about Vinatu, but his most well-known books are about Vinatu, who is uh, sort of a creation of Karl May's imagination. Um, Karl May never actually went to North America uh, until after he published these books, um, and Vinatu was uh, meant to be an Apache warrior who fought battles, traveled the Wild West, and had adventures with his uh, sidekick, uh, Old Shatterhand, um, who <laughs> Wait, what is that in German? Like, I think it was just old Shatterhand in English, better? right? Yeah, like I think I'm, I'm a little bit confused because because <laughs> like, apparently like Karl May developed like a dialect that old Shatterhand spoke in, and I think there might have been like English actually in the books, but that seems strange to me. Anyway, because okay. apparently he's, like old Shatterhand sort of spoke in this like made up like southern drawl but in text form but i'm having a hard time imagining how carl my would have like we actually we actually need German. to read one of these books and yeah do a we little should follow up <laughs> yeah when we do our field trip we can we do a little follow-up yeah to do this. a premium uh premium episode about yeah. <laughs> reading carl my <laughs> reading series <laughs> yeah reading series apache um, german english dialect <laughs> but his um yeah this old oh, it's literally just old chatterhand like also yeah and old chatterhand was actually the narrator of these books and he was he was a german who was in America and he, you know, befriended this Vinatu and they became blood brothers. And it's all about this sort of friendship and this Wild West adventures. Um, and, you know, I think just before we get into some more things, I think it's just important to kind of say that it cannot be overstated how popular and influential these books and in particular the character of Vinatu was and uh, continues to be today. You know, maybe not as many young people know specifically uh, Vinatu and have read Karl May's books, but definitely the sort of influence can be can be felt today. Yeah, definitely. And so we'll run through a bit of the history and kind of influence and some of the modern day quirky things about this. And then later in the episode, we have a great interview with Drew Hayden Taylor, who is a Canadian author and is a, writes a lot about being an indigenous person in Canada and actually traveled to Germany and kind of toured some of these sort of villages and settlements where people cosplay as Native Americans. So he has a really great firsthand perspective about this, and we'll get to that later. And yeah, I think the main thing or an important thing about Karl May and like what this means for German culture and German history is you can't really separate it from the time when it was written, right? In the late 1800s, Germany has just unified as a country it's this romantic period where there's sort of focus on on nature and these sort of spiritual elements. And I think that really had a lot of resonance in Germany at the time because North American wilderness is seen as like a very is a very pure form of this sort of, you know, longing for longing for nature. I mean, that's obviously like the most stereotypical romantic thing, right? Is that like Caspar David Friedrich? painting of him yeah. above the sea of clouds and like okay that's just a sexist fight like there's not very much there <laughs> like imagine if that's the kind of thing that excites your imagination and there's a whole continent of it or at least in your mind there's a whole continent of it obviously the transcontinental railroad had already been built america was still enclosed a lot but it satisfies this sort of urge for this like wide open space throughout this era and it's really not the only political and aesthetic urge that it would satisfy in German culture. Um, 
Karl May was the favorite author of one Adolf Hitler, actually. There's a there's a bit written on this, actually. Um, there's a good journal article that we'll link to called The Role of the Romantic West in the Shaping of the Third Reich by W. Raymond Wood in the journal Plains Anthropologist, one of my favorite publications. <laughs> and I'll just quote from that a bit here because I, I think it's it's quite interesting what it represents. He says, quote, Hitler would lean on Karl May as proof for everything imaginable, in particular for the idea that it was not necessary to know the desert in order to direct troops in the African theater of war, that a people could be wholly foreign to you, as foreign as the Bedouins or the American Indians were to Karl May, and yet with some imagination and empathy you could nevertheless know more about them, their soul, their customs and circumstances, than some anthropologists or geographers who had studied them in the field. So I guess, yeah, like a, a vibes-based approach to <laughs> anthropology. You just think really hard about it. <laughs> yeah. And come up with the entire inner world of yeah, like, so people obviously who have a different culture than you. <laughs> that's obviously a great perspective for like an incredibly racist, uh, genocidal maniac to just be like, oh, yeah, I, I know everything I need to know about them. Like, I can just, <laughs> I can just suss it out from here. Uh, continuing... Hitler would say that Winnetou had always been his model of a noble spirit. After all, it was necessary to have such a heroic figure who would instill in young people the right concepts of nobility of mind. Youth needed heroes like their daily bread. There you have the great importance of Karl May, Hitler would say. A couple more quotes here. It's no exaggeration to say the Third Reich was an extension of Hitler's youthful fantasies. And the origins of many of those fantasies lay in escapist literature, like Karl May. And so I don't, I don't want to overstate this, right? I don't think there's anything per se fascist about liking these books. Like, it's a bit bizarre and probably leans towards racist. But I'm like, I know people that like, have grown up reading these as well. Like, it's not, I'm not saying like it implies anything necessarily political. But I do think it speaks to some very important Nazi tropes and that also relates to why these found such popularity as Germany, you know, was becoming an empire and then even even more expansionary, obviously, in the early 20th century. Those are things like, you know, this idea of Lebensraum, living space, this like wide open continent, the racial purity of the Native Americans, which Hitler repeatedly said he really admired and respected about them. The idea of masculinity and this warrior ethos. And I think there's, in a lot of ways, a very deeply conservative sense in these novels and the sort of stereotyped Native American experience about something pristine, noble, and pure from an invented past having been lost. And that's like a really common, common theme of a lot of these far-right ideologies. And after the Second World War, this is a bit of a like cynical perspective, but I think the focus on Native Americans, it also really relativizes the own genocide carried out here in Germany. And you see this in the documentaries about Germans now who who dress up and do this like this cosplaying. They they really associate more with the sort of quote Indians than the the cowboys, to use the sort of the simplistic play terms that they use sometimes. And in a way that's good, right? Like it's better to to sort of associate with the with the oppressed than the oppressor. But I think it also feels like a bit of a form of indirect excusing and, and dodging of the past. And like, I mean, I talked about the right wing tropes in this appeals, but in a way it was like a it was a fantasy for all political stripes because it was popular in, in the DDR in some periods, too, because they were like, oh, this is like this anti-American sort of anti-colonial resistance. And so you can see how it operates on many different levels and, and suits a lot of different political ideologies. Yeah. And just adding to sort of your um points about the Hitler and, and Nazi interest in in um, both the Karl May books, but also sort of indigenous peoples in North America more generally. You, you, know, you talked about this whole racial purity thing that sort of Hitler really kind of idolized in the indigenous North Americans. Um, something that often comes up in writing about uh, this phenomenon in Vinatu and Karl May is that uh, there was actually sort of uh, talks. I don't know if it was like actually officially done, but there were sort of uh, discussions to make the Lakota um, First Nations people in North America honorary Aryans during the mm, yeah, Nazi yeah. regime. Whatever because, that means. Well, yeah, whatever <laughs> that means. But because they, yeah, they viewed them as like, you know, these 
I mean, it's it's like, yeah, completely sort of in these stereotypical terms of, you know, being these noble warriors, yeah, these racially pure noble warriors fighting against, I guess, also against the Americans. And so they, um, yeah, somehow like related to that. But also on this note of uh, sort of in the, the present day or, or since the Second World War, this uh, sort of interest in indigenous peoples as being a way of, you know, potentially indirectly excusing or dodging the past. There actually has been some sort of research and literature on this. Um, I want to mention uh, the, the name Hartmut Lutz, who actually has, has, you know, I think written a whole book about this and done lots of research into this. He was the one who actually coined the term uh, Indian enthusiasm for this phenomenon. Uh, and he's written that... Um, uh, according to Lutz, he said that after the Second World War, Indian enthusiasm served as a way of coping with the guilt and avoiding taking, taking responsibility for the Holocaust through both escapism into a fantasy past and through blame shifting the burden of genocidal qualities onto the victors of World War II. Okay, so that's not just my uh, conspiracy take. Someone no. who's an actually expert said that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> right, and these stories and kind of the, the entire film... Uh, the film spinoffs have inspired generations of Germans really to have this bizarre obsession with Native American culture. Um, not just like a fan culture, actually, because about 40,000 Germans are members of approximately 400 clubs um, dedicated to Indiana hobbyism, which means literally playing pretend native right like yeah sometimes like dressing year up round, yeah, right? yeah sometimes sometimes like there's like lifestyle. an entire lifestyle <laughs> just uh you wake up one day and you decide i would rather be somebody else's identity <laughs> and <laughs> rachel what's never mind Cut that. <laughs> Rachel Dolezal. Rachel Dolezal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but this is really, you know, they go all in. They have powwows and other events where they dress up in First Nations garb and really perform the dances and songs, um, the traditional dances and songs, really living in this fantasy version of what they think life as an indigenous North American person is like. Of course, complete with teepees yeah there's these quite <laughs> substantial ones there's a few of these i think there's one in templin there's one in spandau outside of berlin or like a smaller kind of setup no. that we want to visit i think the biggest and most extravagant one is pullman city in bavaria um where they have this like full-on like play uh, it's called uh vinitu eternal friendship and it's like this whole wild west city like it looks like the stereotypical thing in a movie and they like People go there. Some people live in teepees year-round. Um, there's actually a casting call now if anyone wants to join the play. Um, <laughs> looking for extras who are enthusiastic about acting in the Karl May play, Winnetou, Eternal Friendship. Both in small speaking roles and without speaking roles, areas to be occupied are Indians, cavalry, bandits, townspeople, etc. Um, an extra usually plays several different roles. So it's good if you can kind of channel, like if you've got a little bit of bandit in you, but like a little bit of Indian, you know, they want, they want some kind of all round actors here. So this is like a very much still an ongoing thing. This isn't like a frozen in the past. Oh, no one cares about Winnetou anymore. Like these are big shows with like, we, we saw yeah. the image. It's probably thousands of people are right? each yeah. one of these performances. And they do these like stereotypical like dances that aren't actually derived from any real yeah. culture. Like this is like alive and well in Germany today. Well, and yeah, in addition to these places like Pullman City and the one in Templin and the one in Spandau, like there's also, I think, uh, like a dozen Karl May festivals around the country that happen every summer where they, yeah, will put on play versions of his books. Inclu like I think the biggest one is in Schleswig-Holstein um, where, yeah, like it's this massive theater and it's like a whole, you know, they have like these German movie stars, you know, playing the role of Vinitu and it's, yeah, it's this huge thing. Um, I mean, again, you really can't kind of overstate how, how huge this is. Um, but we should get on to our guest. Um, so we, uh, Ted and I interviewed Drew Hayden Taylor, uh, who is a well-known indigenous Canadian author from the Curve Lake First Nation. 
Uh, and he, um, in addition to writing a number of books and, and plays, he also has a documentary that was released a few years ago on the CBC about Germany's uh, and Germans' obsession with Native Americans. Uh, the documentary is called Searching for Vinitu. Um, I think you can find it online, so we'll po uh, post a link to that in the show notes. Um, and yeah, he, uh, Drew has a lot of super insightful perspectives based on uh, a lot of his sort of tours through Germany. He's been to Germany many, many times. He was formerly a guest lecturer at the university in Lüneburg. So yeah, he's, he sort of has some good perspective here. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, in, in addition to the interview, which is great, we really recommend his work as well. Um, specifically, I should mention one of his uh, best known pieces, this essay called Pretty Like a White Boy, which is where he discusses the issue that he's faced being a First Nations person in Canada, not really fitting the stereotype of outward appearances that others expect from that background, you know, he's experienced this, for example, in the essay sites like film castings where people are kind of disappointed when, in a way, when they see him. Um, and so I think that's really relevant for the interview here because he alludes several times to meeting Germans and then not kind of living up to their simplistic views of what an indigenous person should look like. And that, you know, adds a whole other dimension to this very simplistic, very reductionist token. token. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, that's just an important note before we get to the interview. Um, but yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. And all right, on to Drew Hayden Taylor. So I am wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit about how you became first familiar with Carl uh, mm. Mai and with, with Vinatu. Well, in the last uh, 25 years, I have had about 19 trips to Germany, most of them lecture tours of universities, um, um, conferences, cultural festivals, etc. And uh, every time I'd go, I would see uh, some sort of little uh, thing that would that would tweak my interest involving indigenous people. I remember once walking down a street, could have been in Berlin, I'm not sure, and on this construction site, on this big wooden wall, there was there there a picture of one of those cliched sides of the side of an Indian head with a full headdress, and it just said Indiana down the side. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. Another time, I think I was up in uh, Lüneburg, and I was taking a cab from the train station to the hotel, and uh, I passed two teepees in the cab. And I just thought this was all very bizarre and odd. And I started asking about it. And they started telling me about Karl May, Winnetou, and that whole subculture of interest in uh, North American Aboriginal culture. I, I use the term North American, though specifically, it's e usually either Apache or Lakota. Um, but um, there's a huge bizarre interesting connection between Germany and Canadian indigenous people too um, so I would come over I would find a little bit here a little bit there finally uh, I bought one of the books I read I read went into one in English and um, I just found it absolutely fascinating absolutely fascinating and I had one of my plays was being done in the Czech Republic and then touring to I think it was uh, Dresden and um, one of the actors in it is also a filmmaker. And when I told him about this, he found it absolutely fascinating. And so we pooled our resources, I contacted a third person and decided to do a documentary on it for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And we pitched the idea to them. They really liked it. They gave us some money and we went and did it. So it was, I started coming to Germany about 25 years ago. So it took about 20 years in the making, uh, the documentary. And I actually did sort of a personal research I, I did find this stuff so fascinating that about 10 years ago i wrote a i wrote a, a play about the whole uh indiana thing and it's called the berlin blues and it's one of my most successful plays it actually premiered in los angeles and toured uh, and was has been produced in about half a dozen other places too you you discussed you know Karl May himself right i mean about what is it 200 million copies so sold in total so like a pretty a pretty staggering amount of popularity, you know, from the late 1800s all the way to the present. I was curious, like, like what did you think, you know, both personally, um, what this meant about the, the First Nations people, but also what it meant about, like, what, 
but what about German culture sort of needed these myths and like why was that so appealing to them? I didn't if you had any thoughts on that when you first came. Well, across. that's more of a question for Germans than for a Canadian Aboriginal person. I don't know why Germans needed it. I mean, when I was when I read read the original book and all the research I did on it, I just found it to the 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 premise to be just a greatly romanticized Western, practically a comic book. Um, and so I guess everybody needs comic books. Everybody needs heroes. Everybody needs fan fantasies. One of the interesting characteristics I discovered in my trips to Germany and talking about this is also this sort of bizarre need that a lot that German, that some Germans have even for just a concept of wilderness. You know, that, that scene in the movie where I was walking through the forest and the forest is so uh, pristine and so precise and in a, in a checkerboard fashion. Um, there's a there's a story I when I was up in the Yukon, uh, as we say in the in the documentary, there's a flight from Frankfurt to Whitehorse uh, every Sunday carrying 254 Germans to go and play in the north. And there's a story of this this German woman whose personal dream was to go and walk in a Canadian forest, the wilderness. So they took her out. She went for a small walk in the forest and she came back supposedly in tears and they asked her what's wrong. She said, the forest, these Canadians don't know how to keep their forest clean. There are dead trees and branches and leaves everywhere. They don't look after their forests. And so this is a, the, the sort of bizarre concept, this, 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 this romanticization of Canadian wilderness, of indigenous people. I mean, the, the, uh, the movies and the plays I've seen of Winnetou, he's always in white buckskin. And the ironic thing being the Apache didn't wear buckskin. I've been to Apache reservations and I've, and I've talked with some of the historians. They don't wear buckskin. It's too hot in the desert. Some of the movies I see, they're in what looks to be stylized birch bark canoes on lakes in the mountains. The Apache didn't have canoes, let alone birch bark canoes. They didn't live in the mountains. All the And they didn't have totem poles. They didn't have teepees. There's so many inaccuracies. So when I look at it, I just see a children's perspective of a culture they're not very familiar with. In some of the in some of the interviews that you do in your documentary, people say, you know, oh no, well this is this comes from a place of respect. Um, you know, we we're just really interested in this. Um, you know, we we just love the culture, and it's not you know it's not racist at all. But like you said, they they jam together and combine these like very distinct cultures and very distinct peoples. And so like, do you view this as like a I guess a positive thing, if a bit strange, or really like a bit more? A bit more offensive and really not not trying to understand the culture and just sort of taking what they like from it without really getting into the context and the, and the well, as i said at the end of the um documentary we talk about whether is this is appropriation or appreciation the thing with appropriation is people wanting wanting to be or profit from whatever they're appropriating i am upset to the, at the point where where you're putting a, the wrong set of characteristics or or attributes on a people um, on purpose. So that sort of annoys me. Other than that, I just find it just so over the top, so silly that I don't, um, I personally am not insulted. I just sort of, I actually in many ways feel sorry for, for this sort of inaccurate embracing of indigenous culture because it's wrong in so many ways. What I found interesting about this was that so many, so many different strains of German society found this appealing in some way, right? Like it sort of starts during the Romantic period, um, and then you have later, um, you know, it uh, obviously Adolf Hitler. <clears throat> excuse me, Adolf Hitler was a big fan of this movement. You have it um, appeal in in the DDR in East Germany as well, seeing it as kind of like an anti-colonial struggle, and so. That's what I found is like how it um, very fascinating is how it speaks to so many different segments of German society. And I'm curious, like in your conversations with people, was there a sort of dominant strain? And like you talked about them wanting to get to the wilderness um, and the sort of the physical beauty of North America. But was there something else that you felt like they were reaching for? The impression I get from talking to a lot of these people is for the for, for the most part, they seem to think 
many indigenous people still live that traditional lifestyle on horses, hunting buffalo in teepees, things like that. That they're 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 very like for instance, um, there was a guy uh, I knew who uh, was stationed at a army base in uh, in Germany. And for some reason, the small town nearby heard he was coming. He was native. They were all excited to meet a real native person. And he shows up and he is a typical soldier with short soldier hair. The local townspeople were very, very disappointed when they met him that he didn't look like Winnetou. He looked like a soldier with dark skin. So again, there's this perception that, you know, that we, we look like the characters that Karl May thought he was creating way back in the 1880s. So when somebody like me shows up, they're somewhat disillusioned. Uh, talking, as you may remember from the documentary, uh, Christian, I think, actually went to the, I think it was the, the Navajo Reserve and one of the uh, Lakota Reserves, and he was disappointed by what he saw because he saw drug abuse, he saw suicides, he saw all the sort of stuff that he was not expecting to see, and it, uh, it it surprised them, as it does, I think, with the vast majority of Germans there. They think time has stopped uh, in First Nation communities, and um, they think, the, the, I, I actually met a group, the Spanish equivalent of Indianers in Spain. One of my books was translated into Spanish. I toured Spain, and I met this guy who's living with a group of people in the foothills of the Pyrenees, uh, he tried. He hitchhiked nine hours to come and hear me read because he heard a, a native author was uh, was touring Spain, and he hitchhiked for nine hours because they don't have a car because the Lakota don't have cars. And he arrived, and he was in a white shirt with a with a plain vest. He had a medicine bundle. He had long hair, and he like had a choker. He looked more native than I did. And he uh, he was again disappointed to see how I looked and dressed. <clears throat> and we were talking through an interpreter, and he says his people's dream. They're trying to live like the Lakota, and their people's dream is to up and move to the south to South Dakota to go and live with the Lakota. And I said, how are you going to go and live with them when you don't? None of you speak English. And he said, the Creator will provide a way. And he's completely naive. He thinks again uh, that that they live they live in teepees on horses and hunt buffalo. And the fact is, South Dakota on on the uh, Lakota reservation, a Rosebud, I think it is, um, is one of the poorest counties in America. They have a lot of drug, alcohol, and poverty issues. It's not at all like what they're expecting. So again, that's what I see for 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 this whole Indiana movement. And I should like to say, we focused on Germany because this is where it comes from. This is um, this is where it's strongest, but it also is in Spain. I found bits of it in Italy. Uh, it's in the Czech Republic, it's in Poland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all through Europe, but it's, I find it strongest in Germany. I know that's, that's really interesting to see how it's, how it's right. Like it's, it's spread around, I mean, it is, it's, you know, it's very easy to kind of like single out the Germans here and point out like the real absurdity of it with this uh, Pullman city, this like giant town and these other areas where they, some people live year round and they, they really just like make believe play this like this lifestyle. But like we said, without really understanding any of the nuance and not really wanting to see the people as still living and still evolving, you know, with, with modern things now going through various struggles and just wanting them to be frozen in time, both frozen in this imaginary past and kind of combined into this imaginary homogenous uh, stereotype of a Native American. You know, it'd be like, um, you know, I'm sure Germans would get upset, right, if you showed someone in Bavarian dress eating like a fish sandwich while drinking a Kölsch beer from the West, right? They'd be like, no, no, no. Like Oktoberfest, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and so. Actually, one of the, what you're talking about being stuck in time, one of my most recent projects is about uh, three, four years ago. I, I wrote a book, uh, a collection of indigenous science fiction short stories that I had published that was very, very successful. Just about three weeks ago, my newest book is out and it's a, uh, I edited, I compiled and edited a collection of essays on indigenous futurisms. 
where indigenous people will be or should be in the next 20, 40, 100 years from now. Because, okay, and, 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 and it's not just me. Indigenous science fiction is, is very popular in Canada. The works of Wabagija Grice, uh, Sherry Demolane, etc. Um, so, you know, we as a people, we are looking forward to the next century. We're an evolving people, which I think is the antithesis of what people in Germany perceive. And were you able to communicate that to people? I mean, it seemed like from the documentary, most people don't have any, like, hate or racism in their hearts. They're maybe just a bit misguided. So were Certain you able naivete. to kind of communicate? Well, I do. I, I, was, I was mentioning, I've done 19 lecture tours of Germany, and I do mostly universities, um, cultural festivals, and uh, things like that. And um, I'm finding, for the most part, and I could be wrong, that the vast majority of Germans under 40 have not read Winnetou. It's the people over 40, for the for the most part, largely, that have embraced the, the, the Winnetou perspective. In the documentary, you have people like Christian, etc., and a lot of his friends there who are under 40. There are some who do that, but for the most part, because I go, I, I did lecture tours of, of the universities that have a very strong, a lot of these universities have strong American and Canadian studies where they talk about indigenous studies. And so part of my part of my work there has been sort of telling people about the reality of life in indigenous communities across across Canada. So I think there is an interest in the younger audience in learning about that. They are very, very curious and more respectful of the reality of the indigenous situation. I think it's the older people who grew up with Winnetou that are holding on to that belief more more than anything else we were sort of discussing like whether this is, I guess, well, you you were saying that sort of you don't personally kind of take offense to to this and, you know, but then, you know, Red Herco, you know, he sort of has a bit of a different position. And, and in the documentary, you spoke with other indigenous people who, you know, come to these festivals and yeah, have their own kind of kind of positions. But I, I am sort of curious, like, you know, this sort of question of like, are there any harms to this kind of you know, whether it be appropriation or appreciation, you know, I think in Canada, this is one of the big conversations is like, well, what actual, what actual harm does this have for, you know, real, as you said, you know, evolving, living indigenous communities. And, you know, I, I think kind of maybe a striking example of this is, you know, the, the, that case of in the Carl my museum where they sort of had the, the scalps from this, the Chippewa tribe and finally returned them after, you know, seven years of sort of this back and forth between. Oh, uh, the, this, the, this is actually new to me. Have they actually returned the scalps? I believe so. I think last year, I think there was a story about them actually being returned unless maybe I'm mistaken, maybe that was the museum decided that they would return them. Maybe they haven't actually physically been returned yet, but definitely there's been a decision made there. And I guess I do wonder if like, what what is the connection there with this sort of whole kind of hobbyism? Um, like it's, it almost seems like some of these Indian enthusiasts, hobbyists can sort of feel like they know no better, you know, than than real indigenous people because they've, you know, spent so much time, you know, living in this like authentic way and stuff like this. And I guess I'm just curious about this aspect. Like, do you see that as a real potential potential harm there? Or is this sort of just like a one-off kind of case of with this one museum? One of the ironies of the situation is we're having a problem here in Canada with, with what are called pretendians. White people who have taken on the, the persona, the culture, the name of, of, of indigenous cultures. And one of the reasons that is, is that, um, you know, there are a few things more more important and personal to an individual person and a people than their identity. And in Canada, for the last 150 years, the government has actively, actively been trying to eliminate, stamp out and eradicate the Indigenous identity. And it's only been within the last couple of decades that we've we, we've reasserted ourselves and are in the process of um, asserting our identity. So in this situation in Germany, where you have these people dressing up and powwow dancing in regalia and 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 to music, it is it 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 boggles our mind, and that's why some people get it. I find I th would think get a little testy or angry about this because again it's taking the identity of a people they have no connection to and everybody is very very 
um, protective of their identity. So that's where some of the the negative aspect comes from. You're 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 stealing our voice. You're stealing our 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 songs, our dances, etc. So that will piss off a lot of people. And I have to say, I'm sort of on the fence about that because I I see them. I, I see the appreciation. I see how much how much they 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 like and and are very interested in our culture. But I also see the fact that they've they've, they've embraced themselves in it so much that sometimes it it's it's very very unnerving. Um, so where this is going to be in the next couple of decades, I don't know. As political correctness grows and and the whole pretending thing gets stronger and stronger. I don't know. It's hard. To, it's it's hard to say. Right now, personally, I just find it funny. I just I just like it's like watching children play up, like act up, like princesses and cowboys and 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 Klingons type of thing. Uh, so obviously, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying about how they're you know they're taking from a culture that they really have no connection to. I'm curious if you see any kind of like positive potential here and a way to turn this like huge amount of interest in the culture and and try to sort of forge that or harness that to actually raise more awareness um, and you know contextualize the actual life of indigenous peoples and if, if there's a way to convert something that for now seems like you said it's funny maybe a little skewing to the negative and a way to actually kind of harness that and, and create something better oh, I, I mean all it all starts with communication you have you have a group of people who are interested in another group of people. Maybe not the most accurate uh, assessment of the people, but at least there's interest, there's communication. Uh, I think I think it's the good basis for sort of starting starting a relationship, starting a friendship, and it gives us the opportunity to sort of tell them this is right, this is wrong. Um, we like this, we don't like that. You're doing this correctly. This is kind of problematic for us. So yes, the fact that there is that interest, I think opens the doors for communication and makes the situation, um, I think, easier to deal with and and much more, uh, it, it creates an environment of education, which I think is what is very important. Something that I was also thinking of, Drew, when, when you were bringing up before how, you know, most young people in Germany today, uh, haven't read Karl May or haven't read Vinatou. Um, but, but, but one sort of moment recently when I was really kind of struck by this, the way that this kind of Indian enthusiasm thing has really permeated German culture is, you know, I was at this sort of costume store around Halloween. And I mean, Halloween isn't even a German thing really, but I mean, a lot of young people nowadays, you know, are very kind of into dressing up and going to parties. And in these Halloween costume stores, there's like huge sections totally dedicated just to like the whole cowboys and Indians thing and to, and like kind of, and like very specific too, like, you know, there's, there's like the, you know, Eskimo kind of costume that you can wear. There's the First Nations costume. There's like all these different kind of, and, and that seemed very strange to me because like the, the, the target audience there is probably not you know, the person who loves Karl May and is like really dedicated to this kind of, um, yeah, this Vinatou uh, story, but sort of just your kind of average German person who, you know, grew up with this kind of, in the background, this knowledge of, of those people over there. And, you know, it just struck me like that, that would never be okay in Canada, like anytime there's sort of a costume yes. store where those kinds of things are there, like it's, you know, it's posted on social media, there are boycotts, this kind of stuff. And I mean, is that even, is that even connected to the whole Karl May Vinatou phenomenon for you? Or is that like just a whole kind of separate, separate conversation? Well, I mean, they've, they've, they've uh, changed the Cleveland Indians. They've changed the Washington Redskins. They've changed the Edmonton Eskimos. So it is an ongoing thing. Uh, again, how that works in Germany, I'm not sure. Winnetou is a character, uh, you know, um, I, it's, it, it's difficult to say if, if woke culture will come over and uh, whack Winnetou in the side of the head. Um, that, 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 that's going to be fun to wait and see uh, what happens. One of the things I find interesting about um, the, the current Indiana and Winnetou situation in Germany now is a sense of sheepishness. When we screened 
Searching for Winnetou at the festival in Stuttgart. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of Germans who came to came to the festival purposefully decided not to see the movie because they said, "Oh, it's going to be too embarrassing. I don't I don't want to be there. I don't want to get too embarrassed and watching it." So as I said, I think it's a young, uh, it's an older thing, and a lot of older educated people sort of know the silliness of it all and they're quite and, and when i talk to young people who say i've never read it but I, my parents had all the books i my we watched all the movies etc so um i think it'll be a hard sell to get rid of winnetou in germany um but let's see what the next decade brings so i think that's great unless isaac do you have anything else no nothing else for me uh, is there anything drew did that you want to say um before we wrap things up yeah uh, or where people can can find your work or any any projects you're working on now we always well, I'm, um, let our guests uh, do a chance I, to plug stuff yeah, yeah well I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a writer i've had 34 published books and right now one of the things i'm working on is a documentary series here in canada on the wild the wonderful the wacky things indigenous people are doing and wild and wacky and, and interesting indigenous people in general called go and the series is called going native uh, I don't know where or how you would get it in Germany. It's on the uh, Indigenous Television Network, APTN. Um, and I've, um, I'm working on a new novel right now, an Indigenous horror novel. Well, that great. sounds great. Definitely a better source of information on Indigenous people than Pullman City in Bavaria. So <laughs> can, yes. can definitely recommend that. And we'll, we'll, we'll link to that in our show notes. So, yeah, great. Drew Hayden Taylor, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It was fun, gentlemen. Auf Wiedersehen. Thank you so much. Yeah, auf Wiedersehen. All right. Thank you so much to Drew Hayden Taylor. That was a really great firsthand perspective of these bizarre sort of settlements where Germans cosplay as indigenous people without any real like contextual knowledge. I think what happened to indigenous people was mentioned like once in the entire um, searching for Minitou. Like when he's talking to these people, I would really just encourage people to go watch this because it's hard to understate how bizarre yeah. some of the people he interviews are. <laughs> it's yeah. like very hard to describe. Like there are a lot of like garb, like wearing like yeah. a skull, and it's just it'll be like tattooed it'll be like, like Christian Schmidt, and then he's yeah. wearing like and then he's like wearing yeah. like this feather thing, which I'm sure is an amalgamation of like five or six different yeah. first names. Like it's it's very bizarre. So so like. Yeah, check that out if you can. Yeah, I mean the interv- the the documentary is great and I think really interesting. Um, you know, I think it I think it tries to strike like kind of a balance. You know, sort of in a way I, I wouldn't say excuse, but you know it. Yeah, it doesn't go too hard and like sort of accuse like these um, some of these Germans of of racism to the same extent. I think I think some people might uh, yes. say they are, but there he lets are these people speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. and there are certainly some more. Uh, more perspectives on this that are maybe a little more condemning than came through in the in the documentary that was on Canadian public broadcasting. So obviously they're going to go for a sort of balanced perspective, right? But yeah, I think there's some there's some other points of view that are worth talking about. Yeah, there there are definitely sort of some some different perspectives among Indigenous peoples. Of course, you know, not a, a monolith. There's a uh, a writer, a psychologist, a filmmaker, and educator in Berlin named uh, Red Haircrow, who is uh, of Apache and Cherokee and African American background, uh, and he has a I think a little bit of a more critical take on uh, the uh, Indian hobbyist scene. Uh, he he wrote a piece in the for the website Indian Country Today, where he sort of walks through some of his his critiques. He, he interviews some people, um, indigenous peoples living in in Germany and, and Europe, and and talks to them about, talks to them about this uh, phenomenon. So I'm just gonna gonna quote from a bit from that article now. So in this piece, he writes uh, that David Redbird Baker, Ojibwe, has said that when he first came to Germany, he was amused by the hobbyists, but his feelings changed as he spent more time amongst them. They take the social and religious ceremonies and change them beyond recognition. They've held dances where anyone in modern dress is barred from attending, even visiting natives. They buy sacred items like eagle feathers and add them to their regalia. In his opinion, these hobbyists, by claiming the right to improvise on the most sacred rituals, had begun to develop a sense of ownership over native culture. That seems pretty key, right? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) right. And that's the thing is they're not trying to look at what the culture is on its own terms and 
you know, say this is really fascinating to me. I want to learn more about it and having an honest conversation. Also realizing that these cultures are not frozen in time and you can't just only reach back to this imagined past of like pre-contact with yeah. white people. And like, you know, so they do they do these multiple things. And we talked about this on the interview, but like they one blend together tons of different cultures. And then they also don't acknowledge that. You know, these are modern living peoples who are yeah. st- who are still around in many cases and like have adapted their traditions to the modern era. It's not it's not just something that you can kind of fetishize. And it yeah. seems like they don't want to learn the details and they don't want to learn the context and they don't really want to talk to people that don't represent their fantasy image of it. And Drew Hayden Taylor's experience speak to this as well with him sort of, you know, not looking stereotypically yeah. like they expect someone to and being almost like let down by that. And it's like, well, no, you should be curious about that. You should say, oh, I want to understand these culture and these people in all of their richness and not just your fetishized idea of what that is. Yeah, yeah. And he, in this article, he he also talks about sort of the case of um, this Cree man named uh, John Blackbird, who uh, um, Red Herko writes is a minor celebrity in Germany known for his native dance performances and his documentaries on the hobbyists. He often feels frustrated by hobbyists who feel they are more Indian than Indians. He says that uh, he made a documentary entitled Pow Wow in 2005, which follows several people as they perform dances from across a broad spectrum of native traditions. And uh, Blackbird says he was trying to show Germans that native dances are evolving art forms, not the ancient rituals of an extinct people. While promoting this film, he sent an email to a hobbyist organization explaining that his film was about Indian life. He says he received a quick, curt response informing him that the proper term was First Nations and that he would do well not to use racist terminology. So here you see this uh, sort of real ownership that some of these hobbyists have over, um, you know, this sort of culture, this community, this, you know, background that is completely separate from from their actual... Trust the Germans about how to speak about (laughs) indigenous peoples, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I think, you know, maybe this can come across as being like, oh, well... It's kind of problematic, but maybe not like such a huge, not such a huge deal. But I mean, there are some some real dark sides to this, um, especially in the case of of this uh, sort of something that happened at the Karl May Museum, which is in in the hometown of of the writer Karl May. Yeah, let's leave you with this nice, uh, terrifying note <laughs> about the Karl May Museum. Um, a lot of this is coming from a DW article that we'll link. I highly encourage you to look at that. But in May of this year, actually, 2021, the Karl May Museum finally returned a human scalp to the Chippewa tribe in Minnesota who claims um, the scalp belongs to one of their ancestors. And the ask from that tribe came actually seven years prior Um. And the Karl May Museum, the Karl May Museum initially like refused to return the artifact and saying that they didn't know exactly where it was from and you know, that that has to be protected. I mean this kind of classic equivocation, right, that a lot of museums do. They're like, Well, we don't know who to return it to. You see this with like Nazi looted yeah. art and they're like, Well, if we wanna give it back, it's but like, we just well, need I to make what sure happened to the chain of custody. Do, like do, who due diligence and just to like just to really drive the point home, this is someone's scalp that got shipped to Germany that yeah. they're not getting. Yeah. Like, this is like kind of weirder than a piece of art. Definitely weirder. Yeah. And and I think the museum still has like a number of scalps in their possession that they um, that you can go and and see. Uh, I mean, right? I, like this is just one. This of is just the, one of many. Yeah. yeah. And um, um, and in a 2015 report from the Chippewa tribe. They say that this individual was taken without the authority to do so and placed in a museum to be shown like a picture on the wall. Ugh, I do- <laughs> it's not what you want to be doing. It just just stop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as soon as you hear about this aspect of the entire hobbyism thing, it's hard to then look at it as. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When you see how how deep this goes and like, you know, you if you want to look at it charitably, right, you say, oh, well, they're just really interested in the culture and maybe they get a few things wrong. Maybe they're a bit insensitive. Maybe they're a bit goofy. Okay, you know, yeah, maybe there's some room for improvement, some room for dialogue, whatever. But then this idea where they feel full ownership of the culture and say, no, I'm actually going to speak 
for this. I actually know it better. I'm going to keep the like the artifacts that like a, a, like a person's scalp like I'm the custodian. I'm the proper custodian of this. Yeah. That's where to me it crosses the line completely. And that's where and you know this is kind of a bigger conversation. I don't want to necessarily like dive super deep into the cultural appropriation discourse, but like the sort of counterpoint, right, that that is used in the documentary and is used, you know, maybe other times is, oh, well, you know, North Americans celebrate Oktoberfest, so why is it racist for Germans to live in teepees? Yeah. And I don't apples think... Apples and oranges, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> apples and pears, as the Germans say, right? Is that what they say? I don't know what they say. <laughs> <laughs> and... No one in North America is like, I know best about what Bavarians are and I'm going to be like the guardian of their tradition. And there I'm going to There are some like, people in Pennsylvania who <laughs> think that they They know probably about. literally are. Though, <laughs> they probably literally are Bavarians is the kind of difference no, that, there. Yeah, yeah, that's like true. That it also, there's that difference as well. But it's like people get drunk once a year and wear a stupid hat. Like, it, it's just, it's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like uh, Ted at our... Our election I, I, night. I recording. have so much cultural <laughs> awareness and sensitivity. Like. But yeah, I mean, like there was no, uh, you know, mass genocide of Bavarians in history. Just someone They'd is like going to. I know. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't even say that. Someone's going to be like. <laughs> I think we can say that. <laughs> I, I think I think it's fair to say that Bavarians confident. are not a historically disadvantaged people, even yeah. though they're obviously living under Prussian domination in the Bundesrepublik. <laughs> so our sympathies go out to them. Um, you know, maybe they can get independence one day. But yeah, you know, um, they probably say that like their dialect is is used to get like to oppress. Oh yeah, them I mean, uh, like, we can like we, we said we wanted to do a series on various states, and like we can definitely get into the insane regional chauvinisms that are particularly popular <laughs> yeah. in the South, and particularly within that Bavaria. But like this is it's just not really comparable, and you know I understand the temptation to to make comparisons, but I don't really find it accurate. Agreed. So, yeah, don't. Uh, <laughs> Don't dress up as Native Americans if there's any Germans listening to this and probably tell your people, your friends not to do that either. And don't go see the Winnetou show in Pullman City. Um, although although we might. I think I think I, for strictly research purposes. OK, it's different. It's different. It's different. OK, so Spassbrems are outing to Pullman City at some point. We will report back. We will read Karl May. And uh, yeah, we'll get into the, the real firsthand nitty gritty of this. I'm going to have to have a real serious chat with some of my kids at the Kita. Yeah, the Kita <laughs> seem to be like the worst. Like I walk by so many Kitas that have like these like awful racist, not even just like indigenous people, but like all these racist stereotypes. Like I'm, this would not fly in, in North America. But it's like seen it's, as multicultural and like yeah. left leaning. But they're like, oh, no, no, we love everyone in the world and we're so international. So they we're going to draw racist stereotypes of every yeah. continent. And you're like, no, 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 that's not they good. They just love like a themed activity. <laughs> yeah. They're like, God, oh, it goes with the, the season of autumn and we're going to we're going to celebrate. Right. So autumn be the autumn and people. And yeah. Autumn. yeah. <laughs> Right, with well, their Hokkaido like pumpkins and, yeah, right. and yeah. Thanksgiving, and they all it's all <laughs> yeah, it's all one, it's all one yeah. thing. Yeah, it's all yeah. the same. There are enough like Americans in Friedrichstein that <laughs> it is like a population that you have to consider <laughs> when you're. <laughs> yeah, I hate to be like the you know the woke the woke American cultural crusade in Europe, but uh, I am gonna say yeah, don't dress up as Native Americans. It is bad. I think that's all all from us. That's yeah, this is a big one. I feel like we could keep talking about it forever, but that's yeah. that's probably good for Yeah, now. we we'll, we'll get back to this. There's some pretty it just is extremely funny in a way, but yeah, it's And it it's connects to good. a lot of the things I think that we talk about on this podcast. Like With we we had to Steiner sort of stuff. yeah, we had to cut a whole piece about connection to the whole Steiner alternative medicine kind of philosophy, so We'll, we'll pick up on that thread later. <laughs> yeah, a weird undercurrent running through many of the more cursed elements of German politics and society is this Native American thing. So, yeah. More from us. Watch this space. More on this later. <laughs> cheers. All right. Cheers. Ciao. Hey, it's producer Isaac here. That was your semi-weekly episode of Spaßbremse. Thank you so much for listening. And just a reminder to please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening. 
and give us a review or share with your friends too if you feel like it. You can also follow us on Twitter at spaßbremse underscore pod, where you can tweet us all your comments and complaints. That's at S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore P-O-D. And we're also now on Patreon. So if you are able, your support over there would be greatly appreciated too. You can find us there at www.patreon.com slash If you weren't paying attention, that's totally okay. All this info is also in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time. Tschüss.